This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump's former national security advisor is here with dire new warnings about what could happen if he returns to the White House, predicting that Trump might not leave voluntarily this time. Also tonight, President Biden says he's decided on a response to the deadly U.S. attack, the deadly attack that killed U.S. troops. The world is waiting to see what he decided, with the president saying that he holds Iran responsible. Also, we are seeing dramatic new images of an undercover raid in a hospital in the West Bank, with Israeli commandos disguised as nurses killing suspected terrorists in hiding. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, with Donald Trump well-positioned to close in, we believe, on a third Republican presidential nomination, one of his former top aides is stepping up his warnings about what a second Trump term could look like. And when I say former top aide, of course, there are many who have issued similar warnings about what could happen, including Trump's own vice president, Mike Pence. But this is one who had an office just steps away from the Oval. John Bolton will join us live in just a moment. You'll recall his book about his time working in the Trump White House titled The Room Where It Happened. It's out in paperback today with a new foreword, The Room Where It Will Happen Again. Bolton is arguing that if Trump gets back into the White House, it will be the retribution presidency. He writes that Trump really only cares about retribution for himself and it will consume much of a second term. It's an echo of what we have heard repeatedly throughout Trump's campaign. For those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Bolton is predicting a continuing constitutional crisis in which Trump would have the authority to order his Justice Department to dismiss two of his four indictments or, if necessary, pardon himself. He warns that if Trump did so and after a legal battle played out, the Supreme Court invalidated his own pardon it might still take yet another impeachment to actually remove him from office. Quote, he will not depart voluntarily this time, Bolton warns. On the foreign policy front, Bolton's message is also dire, saying that Trump's short attention span renders, quote, coherent foreign policy almost unattainable, and that his most harmful national security failure is the, quote, isolationist virus now coursing through the Republican Party. Bolton writes that it is a close contest between Putin and Xi Jinping who would be the happiest to see Trump back in office. Putin will relish a second term, he writes. Trump will want to enhance his personal relationship with Xi. He adds, quote, imagine Trump's euphoria and resuming contact with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. All three autocratic leaders, I should note, that Trump has repeatedly brought up on the 2024 campaign trail. Kim Jong-un leads 1.4 billion people, and there's no doubt about who the boss is. 
And they want me to say, he's not an intelligent man. I got along with Putin. Let me tell you, I got along with him really well. And that's a good thing. President Xi is like central casting. There's nobody in Hollywood that can play the role of President Xi. The look, the strength, the voice. Overall, Bolton says this of Trump, that he's unfit to be president. If his first four years were bad, a second four will be worse. And joining me tonight is John Bolton, Trump's former national security advisor and the author of The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, which is out today with that new foreword and those eye-opening details. And Ambassador Bolton, it's great to have you here. And as I was reading this foreword, I mean, you were saying that he would cross lines that you believe would cause a constitutional crisis. And you say that it essentially would, would end up with him not departing voluntarily this time. Well, I think uh, what he would do in terms of uh, seeking retribution through the through the Justice Department, what he would do uh, potentially through the Defense Department, uh, and and some of the other agencies of government as well, would produce constant constitutional agitation uh, to the point where I think it would it could cause uh, government functions almost to break down and. When other mechanisms were applied, state criminal prosecutions, the federal cases, uh, congressional oversight, uh, we would be embroiled in litigation and controversy that, uh, that, that could make it almost uh, impossible to get back to normality after he's gone. Th- this is because, as I think we saw beyond question in the first term, and I tried to document in my book, Uh, He just doesn't know limits. What he cares about is the greater glory of Donald Trump. The concept of the national interest or American national security uh, are things he doesn't comprehend. And and as I say, the pattern he established in the first term will continue in the second and just get worse. What else concerns you, just given that you did work with him up close? You were in the Situation Room with him. You were in these briefings in the Oval Office. I mean, what else are you worried about? Well, uh, other than COVID, which was a long-term crisis, uh, we really were fortunate in Trump's first term that we didn't have uh, major international crises, the sort of thing that we remember historically as very tense times uh, in in very short periods of time. Uh, we're, We're going through that kind of crisis, I think, now in the Middle East. There are a lot of decisions that have to be made. I don't think Trump is capable of making the decisions Uh, grounded in national security. His attention span is short. He doesn't know much about world history or world affairs. He actually doesn't think they matter very much. He thinks his personal relationships with foreign leaders, especially the authoritarian ones, are all that matter. And while personal relations in, in international affairs are important, when you get in a situation like we see in the Middle East now, they're, they're not significant. So faced with these decisions, uh, Trump could go one way in the morning, a different way in the afternoon. Uh, he doesn't have the ability to stay consistent for long periods of time, except on one thing, which is how he looks uh, in the press and, and in public attention. And, and that is very worrying. When you're in a crisis, you need a president who is resolute, who can keep his eyes on the prize uh, and worry about our national security, not his own image. So basically, you're saying that you think that he thinks these relationships that that he has with Putin or with Xi Jinping or with Kim Jong-un, that they would save him when it comes to the actual policy 
and the dynamic of those relationships and that, that you're arguing it won't. It doesn't do anything for that. Well, I think uh, the hard men of history, like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, uh, understand what their job is for their respective country. I don't think Trump understands what the job of the presidency is for ours. And I will say, having been in the room with him uh, in meeting those people, uh, having listened in on his phone conversations, uh, I don't think they uh, are really friendly with Donald Trump. I think they think Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un and others, they think he's a laughing fool and they're fully prepared to take advantage of him. Trump's self-absorption makes it impossible for him to understand that. So you think they'd be happy if he returned to the Oval Office? Yeah, I think they's an, I think they believe he's an easy mark. Take take Vladimir Putin on the on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I think he'd love to get uh, Donald Trump to do what he said on the campaign trail and try and find uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky and Putin, get all three of them in a room together. And Trump says, I'll solve the crisis in 24 hours. That is impossible. Uh, and But when you come to the end of the 24 hours, obviously it won't be Donald Trump that failed because that doesn't happen. It must be one of the other two. I think he would point the finger at Zelensky. I think Putin would be delighted with the outcome at that point. I'm glad you brought up what's happening right now because we're waiting to see what President Biden has decided. He says he's made a decision of how to respond to that deadly drone attack. But I was thinking back how in your book, there was a moment where there was a plan to hit targets inside of Iran in 2019 that you say that Trump had signed off on. This was after an unmanned drone went down. And then in between the time that you went home to get a change of clothes and come back to be in the Situation Room as that happened, Trump called them off. And you said you couldn't really understand why. You said it was the most irrational thing I ever witnessed any president do. Are you saying you would not trust Trump to handle a crisis like the one that's happening in the Middle East right now? No, absolutely not. I mean, among many other defects, he listens to the last person that he talks to. Uh, he, he looks at decisions uh, through the prism of how they will be reported for his performance in the press, not for what the outcome is. Uh, for example, he, he did order uh, the early exit of Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Quds Force. But in, in listening to him uh, talk about his views about why that was important, it was clear to me that it wasn't simply to eliminate this major figure uh, who was the leader of Iranian terrorist actions. It was because it would be such a big event that he would get enormous credit for it. Uh, now, every politician thinks of his position, but only Trump, I think, in, in American history can be said as a president who thinks only of its effect on him. The Biden campaign is touting this forward in your book, which I don't think is probably a sentence that you ever thought would be said, but it is something that, that they're doing. I think that makes its own headlines. They say, quote, Donald Trump's own national security advisor issued a stark warning about a second Trump presidency. Americans at home and abroad will be less safe under Trump. I mean, I know that you're not a fan of President Biden's, but given the fact that Trump is headed for the nomination at this point, is the country safer with a President Biden at the helm, in your view? No, I, I don't think so. I think we're going to have two candidates, at least it looks that way at this point, neither one of whom is fit to be president. Uh, Biden's presidency, and we see it in action right now, is extraordinarily weak. Uh, 
Uh, and and what the, the consequence of that is that it puts America more in danger. It's not American strength that's provocative, it's American weakness that's provocative, and that's what we're showing in the Middle East, what we're showing in Ukraine, what I worry we're showing in Taiwan. Uh, Trump, on the other hand, is feckless and, and close to irrational. So uh, I, I would like a do-over, uh, if we could get it, of the nomination process in both parties. I'm very worried. To me, it, it almost doesn't matter between the two of them when it comes to national security uh, okay, who so, wins because so, they'll, they'll both be bad for different reasons. Okay, if you're someone sitting at home right now, I, I just want to ask a question on their behalf. If they're sitting at home and they're thinking, I don't like either of these two who it seems like are going to be the nominees for their respective parties. You're warning about this constitutional crisis if Trump takes office, but you're still saying that you think they're both equally bad. Yeah, look, it, it, I think the situation of the United States strategically, internationally today is growing weaker ever more rapidly for a lot of reasons. A totally inadequate defense budget uh, uh, positions in crisis uh, situations around the world that are dismaying our allies. Uh, Tr Trump would be a, a different form of dismay for them. I, I do think, as I uh, say in this uh, new forward, that he would withdraw from NATO. I don't think anybody should have any doubts about that point. Uh, so when you're when you're left uh, between two choices, neither of which is satisfactory, th there is no correct answer. That's that's quite a message. You know, as we are looking at what's what President Biden is going to do with Iran, what do you think is the right answer in the sense of something that deters them and stops the over 160 attacks, 166, I believe, right now on U.S. forces just since October 17th, but also that, that doesn't trigger this wider war that everyone is so concerned about? Well, I think we're in the wider war now, and I think we've been in the wider war since October the 7th. That's the fundamental problem with Biden's decision-making uh, ever since that point, an absolute incapacity, unwillingness to admit that Iran is the puppet master. And the issue really is not the conflict. The issue is what's causing the conflict. He did say today that he believes Iran conflict. is responsible. Yeah. Well, you know, better late than never, but but it's responsible not just for the tragic death of these three Americans who were left vulnerable for months while Shia militia groups in Iraq uh, and Syria were attacking American military and civilian personnel. And we responded with pinprick strikes that did not deter anybody. But it's also what the Houthi are doing to try and close the Red Sea to commercial traffic, what Hamas did on October 7th, what Hezbollah continues to do in rocketing northern Israel. What, what we need to say to Iran is your total scope of conduct is unacceptable. It is absolutely crossing a red line to kill Americans. And we're going to, we, what we should do, but I fear we won't, is cross an Iranian red line and strike targets uh, inside Iran. Yeah, we'll see if that is an option on the table. Ambassador John Bolton, it's a forward that everyone should read. Thank you for joining us to talk about it tonight. Thank you for having me. And coming up, more on the response coming for the deaths of those three U.S. soldiers. So noted there, President Biden says he's decided what to do. The question is what it will be. Also, Israeli troops, they targeted terrorists inside a hospital, this time undercover. It's a video you've got to see. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. President Biden says tonight that he's decided how the U.S. will respond to the deadly drone attack that killed three Americans in Jordan. But the fact is, the U.S. military has been battling back for months against these Iranian-backed groups in the Middle East. A force of 10 nations is battling the Houthis in the Red Sea. We've seen the U.S. and Britain carrying out strikes in Yemen. Two Navy SEALs recently died whilst helping to stop a ship that was full of weapons off the coast of Somalia. The U.S. has also launched strikes in Syria and Iraq, yet these attacks on American outposts have continued. Now, as we just mentioned, at least 166 since October 17th alone. I'm joined now by the former director of national intelligence and CNN national security analyst James Clapper. And Director Clapper, it's great to have you here because as we're waiting to see what this decision is, I mean, how do you thread the needle between hitting back forcefully but also not trying to create that wider war? Well, Caitlin, that's the key question. And I actually, I'm not sure that's possible. I think the, the two objectives of uh, inflicting enough pain on ultimately the, the Iranians uh, to get them to call off their proxies, but at the same time not, quote, widen the war, I, I think those two uh, objectives are antithetical. Uh, the proxies are expendable as far as the Iranians are concerned. So we, I'm sure that uh, we'll, we'll be striking out at them. But if we don't get to the Iranians, uh, I don't believe this behavior is going to stop. So you don't think that they can be deterred unless there's actual strikes inside of Iran or actual activity inside of Iran? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be kinetic. Uh, uh, I think there's, um, you know, we have a lot of uh, cyber tools in our kit bag. There's a possibility for covert action. Are there more sanctions that we could uh, impose or reimpose on the Iranians? Because the objective here is to induce a change in their behavior. I'll also say, speaking more broadly, that I don't think this issue is soluble through military action alone. What else do you think needs to happen? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Excuse me. You said not not just through military action alone. What what other what other steps do you think needs to happen? Need to happen well, here? Well, I think you know, big picture. Uh, if you consider what is it that is causing this aggressiveness. Uh, directed by the Iranians, but the aggressive behavior by uh, the, the proxy groups in Syria, Lebanon, uh, etc. And it's the war in Gaza that has prompted this. So ultimately, if we're going to stop this, 
there has to be a political solution in in the Mideast, meaning, I believe, a two-state solution. And that probably isn't going to happen, at least in the near term, given the uh, adamant position taken by the Israeli leadership mm -hmm. uh, not to entertain such a possibility. But we're just going to keep doing this over and over again until there is ultimately a political solution, in, in my view. One other thing, you know, you keep mentioning these Iranian-backed proxies and their power. One of them, Kataib Hezbollah, came out tonight with a statement saying that they're standing down on attacking U.S. forces in the region. What do you think is behind that? Well, I think it's PR more than substance. Uh, the Department of Defense, I understand, has sort of thrown cold water on it. So I would... Uh, I would take that with a grain of salt. Um, I really would. I, I, uh, I'd mm. be surprised if they stood down just, be, just because of the possibility of, of, of being, uh, being attacked. It's a troubling situation, and we'll see what the U.S. decides. Director Clapper, as always, it's great to have you on. Thanks, Caitlin, for having me. Up next, we have brand new reporting on what Donald Trump is spending on his legal bills with the official numbers set to come out tomorrow. But spoiler alert, there is new reporting that his PACs have already spent approximately $50 million in 2023 alone. A staggering number. Maggie Haberman is here with her reporting. We have new developments tonight on Donald Trump's legal problems and how much they're costing him. The tab apparently running quite high, though I should note he is not necessarily paying the bill. His supporters are. The New York Times first report that Trump has spent approximately $50 million, yes, $50 million in donor money on legal bills and investigation-related expenses in just the last year alone. The exact numbers will come out tomorrow when he has to file his report with the FEC. But for now, on what we do know, I'm joined by Maggie Haberman, senior political correspondent for The New York Times and Trump biographer. I mean, $50 million for someone who obviously has a lot of legal troubles is still a really astounding number. It, it's an eye-popping number. It is eye-popping in a couple of ways. Number one, he is not somebody who historically has liked paying Legal bills. That was my um, first thought. Yeah. He hates paying his attorneys. Right. Well, this isn't his money. This is donor money. And so, you know, it, it's a lot easier to pay when you're paying with donor money, number one. But number two, this is it's a lot of money. It's not just him. It's also lawyers for witnesses, as you know. It's lawyers for, I think, uh, his two co-defendants, at, at least one of them. Uh, people who are not, one of whom is on the campaign roll, the other is work for Mar-a-Lago. These numbers are not going to get smaller as we go forward, because he has been indicted four times, and this number got exponentially higher last year than it was in 2022. And if any case goes to trial this year, it is going to go even higher. And so how much he is going to be able to continue to pay out of Save America and another committee uh, that he's been using, MAGAPAC, remains to be seen. But, I mean, he still has money coming in. The, uh, Robert Bigelow, who's a billionaire of the hotel chain, the budget suites, he said today he gave Trump a million dollars towards his legal fees and that he made a promise to give him $20 million more to the super PAC. But, but do the actual donors 
the real people know that their their money is going to this? Let me just let me just pick that apart. Uh, the first thing that you talked about with Robert Bigelow, number one, I tried to track that down. Uh, as far as I know, he didn't give money to the legal defense fund that Trump folks set up. That doesn't benefit Trump directly. That benefits everybody else. He can't give a million dollars to save America because it's capped in terms of how much you can give to save America. Mm-hmm. So unless he literally handed Donald Trump a personal million dollar check, I don't know what that is. Uh, in terms of the small dollar uh, donors who, remember this this political action committee was seeded with money that Donald Trump started raising after he lost the 2020 election on his false claims of widespread fraud. And then money had to go somewhere. Uh, a bunch of it went here. Did his donors know this is what they were going to be paying for? Um, no. Would they all mind? I-, I doubt it because some of them thought they were paying for some kind of legal fight. And I'm sure in their mind, you know, uh, the number of his supporters who I talked to in Iowa and New Hampshire who described the legal cases against him as illegitimate or something they didn't believe in, I'm not sure they would care about that. But it is worth noting it is not it is not his money. So not only do they not care, they're they're happy to do it. Some are. Is he paying? Do we, we were talking about this last night with Eugene Carroll and whether or not that could mm-hmm. come out of the super PAC. Do we know what he is personally paying for at this point, if anything? So a couple of things. It can't come out of the super PAC legally. He can't. That that's that would be coordination. The political action committee, which is what Save America is, it as as I expect it will show in the report. We don't know for sure, but just based on the math that I know is there, unless unless they had a flood of donations, it, it would only cover a fraction. Uh, and campaign finance experts are split on whether he could use that anyway. So, yes, it will have to be from him. And, you know, he and his company are fairly indistinguishable. He did have to put up money in the first E. Jean Carroll mm-hmm. trial. It was $5 million. This is a lot more than $5 million. And we could be getting the civil suit for the inflating his, his businesses mm-hmm. soon. Uh, when I was looking at Alina Haba when she came out after he, after that $83.3 million verdict on Friday, I think one question is, is he happy with his legal team at this point? I mean, I know that's a broad term because there's so many of them. But, I mean, what have you heard about that? So I think a couple of things. Uh, he's he's almost never happy with his legal team at various points. And, and you know this as well as anybody, um, especially when, when people just leave court. There are a couple of members of his legal team, like Todd Blanche, who have not yet been tested in court. And it will be interesting to see how he does uh, if the uh, Alvin Bragg Manhattan District Attorney hush money case goes forward in March, as we expect. And he's on that case. Um, I don't I don't know how winnable this case was for anybody, Alina Haba or not. Um, but, you know, Trump has certain things that he wants from his lawyers, and I, and I think you see that. You were sitting here a moment ago when we were speaking with John Bolton about the new Ford that I know you read as well uh, and his warnings about a second Trump term. I just want to, for people who missed it, just remind people what he was saying about the concern of, a, of a, what a second Trump term would look like. We would be embroiled in litigation and controversy that uh, that, that could make it almost uh, impossible to get back to normality after he's gone. Th- this is because, as I think we saw beyond question in the first term, and I tried to document in my book, uh, he just doesn't know limits. What do you make of that paired with him later saying that it's kind of 50-50 ball between whether he thinks Donald Trump or Joe Biden would be worse in the White House? I think it is complicated for Republicans, and especially Republicans who have a long history with the Republican Party pre-Trump, as John Bolton does, to say that they're going to support 
Joe Biden. Um, it's not impossible, and I suspect you will see some doing it. But I think this is the this is the box that a lot of people who oppose Trump, especially people who have worked either for him directly or with him in Congress in some way, uh, have gotten themselves in, which is that they they can't say that they are supporting Biden. They feel like they can't for a variety of reasons, either because they are elected officials still, or because they still have supporters or donors or what have you. Political suicide. Correct. They don't like they don't like Biden. Um, but at a certain point, I mean, this is this is if, if something is an existential threat, it either is or it isn't. And I think that this is going to become a difficult line for a lot of folks to walk as the year goes on. Yeah. How do the warnings carry the same weight if, you know, it was the same thing with Bill Barr. We had this long interview with him over the summer where he said similar. But then at the end, you know, right. what's he going to do? Right support the Republican nominee for president? Well, I mean, this is, this is again, where it gets very complicated. I will say that John Bolton's book uh, was a really remarkable book. I don't, I don't, I can't remember reading a book like that written by anybody who had served so closely with a president. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the NSC official who worked on the clearance of that book was pushed out by the Trump administration for approving it and going through a normal process. Uh, And so John Bolton revealed an enormous amount about Donald Trump as president. Um, And and it's it's important for the historical record. Um, But I do think that everybody who worked for Trump is going to get pressed with the same question. Yeah, it's fast. That's a fascinating part of the book with Ellen Knight, that official Mm -hmm. who was charged with reviewing his book. Because there, he writes about how she was basically trapped in a room in the West Wing right. with six Justice Department officials who were pressuring her right. to essentially block it and turning it into this political thing. It actually said she got hired back by the Biden administration, which Correct. I didn't realize. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a moment when that happened, actually. Maggie Haberman, as always, thank you for bringing your reporting here to The Source. Right now on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are in what could be an all-night committee session. You don't see a lot of work always happening too often over there. But this is tonight leading up to a vote on articles of impeachment for the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Could he be the first member of a president's cabinet to be impeached in nearly 150 years? Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. A live look at Capitol Hill tonight as we are waiting for a vote on articles of impeachment, a vote that could come very well when most of us are asleep tonight, or most of you should be. The Republican-led Homeland Security Committee is expected to vote on two articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans are arguing that he has failed to fulfill his oath of office by not securing the U.S.-Mexico border. That is an argument that Democrats have fiercely opposed. Your own party is sabotaging and undermining this administration's efforts to address the border while you are trying to impeach him by saying that they're not addressing the border. Speaking of the border, I should note that all of this is happening, not in a vacuum, but as we are just learning that Senate Republican leaders are right now talking about potentially shelving their bipartisan immigration deal, the one that they've been working on since October the one that the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, said was dead on arrival. The one that former President Donald Trump worked behind the scenes to kill. Yes, that one they've been working on since October. 
Joining me here tonight, former communications director for the Democratic National Committee, Karen Finney, and former senior advisor to Mitch McConnell, Scott Jennings, who has been, of course, McConnell, one of those people working on the bill. Scott, we'll get to that in a moment. But on the impeachment articles that we are expecting could happen, you know, at two o'clock in the morning is what we're hearing right now. I mean, you already know that the last time this happened, 1876 was the last time that a cabinet secretary was impeached. That was a secretary of war who was found to have pocketed more than $20,000 in a kickback scheme. I should say that is not what is happening here with Mayorkas. So what exactly are Republicans arguing is his high crime and misdemeanor? Well, they're arguing that he is failing to, willfully failing to execute existing federal immigration law. He won't enforce it. Uh, he's apparently, according to them, required to uh, detain and, and deport uh, illegal immigrants coming across the border. Uh, they also think he's lied to Congress uh, and lied to the American people about the border being secure. Now, we can, we're, we, can, we can debate about whether, you know, using impeachment against a cabinet member here fits the normal uh, reasons why we would impeach someone. And we can also wonder about the slippery slope of the weaponization of impeachment, uh, you know, when the next Republicans get in and Democrats control Congress. But bottom line, they think Mayorkas has failed. They think he has lied. And they think it rises to the level of him uh, not uh, enforcing existing federal law. But Karen, I think that is exactly the question here is uh, no one doubts that what's happening at the border is a massive issue. And obviously, Republicans are not going to be happy with what the Democratic president is doing. But but the idea that it rises to to impeaching a cabinet secretary is even something that, that conservative legal minds like Jonathan Turley have said, you know, there's no basis for it. Right. And I think that's an important point that legal scholars, even conservative legal scholars, have said, <clears throat> frankly, it does not rise to that level. Look, this is about a policy difference. It's fine for the Republicans to disagree with President Biden's policy, but punishing a cabinet secretary for that disagreement, that's performative. That's about politics. And that is, frankly, about Donald Trump trying to undermine this country and trying to literally undermine the ability of members of Congress to try to reach a deal. I mean, ironically, think about it. Instead of sitting there trying to, you know, take out Mayorkas, they could have, those Republicans and Democrats, frankly, could have walked across to the other side of the building, uh, the Capitol building, and said, let's, let's talk. Let's try to come up with a deal. Um, so I think that's what, what needs, what stands out here. And I hope that Democrats will continue to call that out because this is not about solving the problem at the border. This is about political wins and political using this issue uh, in the 2024 election. Well, I mean, Scott, given that, the idea, just from what we've been hearing from sources and we've been talking to people about this potential deal for months, since October, that they've been working on it. And the idea that right now they're talking about basically getting rid of it and just doing something on aid to Israel and Ukraine, potentially. I mean, how does that bear out for Republicans? Well, if you're, if you're asking about the linkage between this uh, legislation that's being uh, proposed, maybe, <laughs> and, and my orcas, yeah, it is complicated because the House Republicans are the ones who are the coldest right now on the immigration deal, but they're the hottest on Mayorkas. By the way, I, I should say, I, I mean, if Mayorkas had any shame, he would have resigned 
long ago. And if Joe Biden had any sense, he would have fired him long ago. I mean, this has been an abject failure. And he has repeatedly, uh, at best, misled the American people and at worst, flat out lied about what's going on at the border. I do think the Republicans have are, are looking for accountability. That's why they're going after my orcas. They've not gotten any out of Biden, uh, but they're looking to hold someone accountable for what has become a really major issue for their base. Now, Link is with the, the legislation. To hold that it is a major it is a, legislation, Scott. Not, I mean, why well, take that, the that, step that, of that's my next. That's my next. That's my next point. Is if 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 you if you want to if you want to hold him accountable and say it's because of the urgency of the problem, that's at odds then with also saying, eh, we can wait another year <laughs> to pass a bill because it's a major problem. So so in some ways, holding him accountable, but then shelving something that might help today uh, are incongruous positions. Well, and don't forget that also Republicans walked away from the $14 billion that Biden requested to solve this problem in December. They decided, like, you know what, let's just go on our holiday instead of actually solving problems. So I think that's the conundrum here. If you cared about solving problems, you wouldn't be trying to impeach the secretary. You'd be trying to solve, use your legislative authority to solve the problem. Karen Finney, Scott Jennings, we'll see what they do if this impeachment does happen. They're at least getting it out of committee tonight. Thank you both for joining. Up next for us here on The Source, Israeli troops stormed a hospital searching for Hamas terrorists, but they were disguised as medical workers. There is video tonight, also backlash to what you're seeing here. Tonight, the Israeli military is defending its raid inside a hospital in the West Bank, saying that they will not allow hospitals to be, quote, a cover for terrorism. I want to warn you that what you're about to see is pretty graphic, just to give you a heads up. This is CCTV footage. It shows about a dozen Israeli special forces storming a hospital in Jenin, a city there, carrying weapons while they were disguised as doctors and nurses and woman, women in hijabs. One of the gunmen was seen carrying a wheelchair. Another carried a baby carrier. All of them walking through the hospital while a person was left kneeling against the wall, as you can see. The IDF says they killed three men believed to be planning a terror attack against Israeli civilians. One of them was claimed by Hamas as a member. The other two brothers who were linked to Islamic Jihad, which is another terrorist group in Gaza, the hospital says that all three men were asleep at the time that this raid happened. Right now, no other casualties have been reported, but we have seen crowds of Palestinians gathering for their funeral with tensions only soaring in the occupied West Bank, where residents there have faced increasing restrictions and violence by settlers and Israeli forces. President Biden in recent months even pressed Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel to do more to end violence against the civilians there. I want to bring in CNN's military analyst and retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling tonight. I'm so glad to have you here. I just wonder what you make of this event overall when you're looking at the lengths that the Israeli military took to carry this out. You know, you know, Caitlin, it's fascinating because we often cite the Geneva Convention and the different protocols of the Geneva Convention that prohibits soldiers, combatants from doing certain things. It's apparent in this video that uh, these Israeli, Israeli soldiers that you're seeing on the film right now, who are dressing up as doctors or nurses or women, which are all, uh, all civilians, protective persons under the Geneva Convention. In other words, doctors don't carry weapons, uh, chaplains don't carry weapons, uh, rabbis, uh, imams don't carry weapons. So those are all part of the protected 
persons within the Geneva Convention. The other thing, the facility is a protected facility in the Geneva Convention. You don't uh, use schools, hospitals, uh, places of worship, things like that to attack. The problem is Hamas has been using these kind of facilities. And in this case, because it's in the West Bank, uh, the Islamic Jihad and other terrorist organizations are using those facilities specifically so they aren't attacked. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a challenge on both sides. One side, the terrorist groups are using the facilities that they're not supposed to use, which makes them a target. The other side, Israel, is dressing up their soldiers in non-uniforms, uh, you know, costumes uh, to avoid detection. What I saw in the film was a couple of things. Number one, I'll say this with a little bit of, of cynicism. The Israeli, if those were Israeli special forces, they were not very good at what they were doing. Uh, when you see special forces going into a building in a stack, they're moving quickly. They're not talking to one another. They know exactly what they're going to do. They know where the target is. The one thing that did strike me was I think they were using these costumes, if you will, the, the, the scrubs and the, and the civilian clothes and the, uh, the, uh, the different disguises that they were using in order to get past Hamas or IJU spotters. There were people in this hospital that would notify those who were inside, hey, the Israeli forces are coming in, either the security forces or the military. So as you see, as they get into the stack and get into this hallway, some are turning around looking behind them, which is typical for an operation. But I think they also use these to get past reconnaissance being conducted by Hamas or IJU. So again, the final point I'll make in terms of, of the law and how it applies to any kind of action in combat is you always have the right of self-defense. If Israel claims, hey, we were defending ourselves from a potential attack that was coming out of this hospital and we had to use extreme means to come in, they might have a legal argument. But I got to tell you, watching the entire film, there's problems on both sides. The facility was being used as a terrorist hideaway. The Israelis were coming in yeah. outside of their uniforms, both, both illegal. And that's why we have you on for that perspective. It was very helpful breaking that down. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, thank you as always. Thanks, Kayla. And also tonight, the world has lost another legend as we are remembering the trailblazer Cheetah Rivera next. Tonight, of course, the stars lining up to honor the legendary Cheetah Rivera, who has passed away at the age of 91. For nearly seven decades, she acted, sang, and danced her way to 10 Tony nominations high kicking the door open for herself and also the generations that followed. Lynn Manuel Miranda called Miranda called her the trailblazer for Puerto Rico on Broadway and that she was when she created the role of Anita in West Side Story, a role that was later played by another legend, Rita Moreno, in the movie. She was the scheming Velma in the original production of Chicago, a role that later won Catherine Zeta-Jones an Oscar, I should note, Tonight, Jones is calling to dim the lights on Broadway in her honor, and we agree. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.